I'll say I'm not optimistic about anything in this whole horrific context of the last four months. But if there is one avenue where diplomacy has a chance, it is this one. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. As I am recording this, Antony Blinken is wrapping up a whirlwind trip to at least eight countries in the Middle East and Mediterranean region. This flurry of diplomatic activity comes in the wake of worrying signs that the conflict in Israel and Gaza may spread throughout the region. The Houthis have mounted a series of attacks on commercial shipping off the coast of Yemen in the Red Sea. Meanwhile, Israel has targeted a senior Hamas and a senior Hezbollah leader with missile strikes in Lebanon. The risk of widespread regional escalation is suddenly very acute, according to my guest today, Natan Sachs. He is the director of the Center for Middle East Policy and a senior fellow in the foreign policy program at Brookings. We kick off discussing Antony Blinken's trip and what he hopes to accomplish. This includes planning for a post-Hamas political order in Gaza. And here, Natan Sachs explains, there is significant differences between the preferences of the Biden administration and Netanyahu and deep divisions within Israeli politics. And we have a lengthy conversation about how domestic Israeli politics is influencing and impacting Israel's approach to Gaza right now. So here is my conversation with Natan Sachs of Brookings. So, Natan, as we speak, Antony Blinken is in Israel, wrapping up a whirlwind trip to Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Qatar, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia. Why those countries, and why now? Well, why now is actually why now again. Blinken has been there multiple times, as have many very senior members of the administration, starting with the president himself, who went to Israel very shortly after October 7th. Blinken, of course, is involved heavily in the diplomacy. And there are several aspects of the diplomacy. First, an attempt to restart hostage negotiations that would involve also ceasefire or temporary pauses in the fighting and allow the release of more hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. 
that's always in the background. That's done mostly via the Qataris, but more recently via the Egyptians as well. A second aspect, of course, is the question of the day after. The Americans and the Israelis have somewhat of a different view of what this day after would be. And when I say day after, of course, it's probably not a day. It is probably, unfortunately, a prolonged process that may take quite a while. But the Americans have very concrete views on this. They also want to garner support from the region and therefore have to also make sure that their positions for the long term facilitate that. What I mean by this is that they are vocally expressing support for two-state solution, which they genuinely do support in Washington, but they also feel they need to say that and they need to push for that in order to garner Arab and other support for their efforts towards the day after. And they need to square that with the Israelis who have conflicting views on what the day after would be, both conflicting with Washington to a certain degree, but also conflicting with and among themselves. And the last aspect is, of course, the shape of the fighting itself. Israel has now entered a new phase, which it had planned originally to enter, but the timing has a lot to do with Washington. It's a phase of less intensive fighting, less intensive bombardment and incursion. Of course, this is not in any way to diminish from the crisis already unfolding in the Gaza Strip, even without any more bombardment. The humanitarian crisis is very severe and the winter is upon us. So that is also an, an issue that Blinken is dealing with, especially with the Israelis. So I do want to spend the bulk of our conversation discussing that debate over the day after. But before we get there, I'm curious to learn from you, to what extent do you think the threat of regional escalation is what triggered this most recent flurry of diplomatic activity and the visit of Blinken to all these countries in such a short period of time? I mean, in the last just a few days, we've seen Israeli strikes inside Lebanon. There was that ISIS attack inside Iran, which is supposedly something separate. The Houthi attacks on commercial shipping. We seem to be in a seemingly escalatory cycle that the Biden administration has been seeking to avoid since the start of this conflict. You're absolutely right, and that is a very high priority for the Biden administration. I'd separate completely the ISIS attack in Iran. It is quite possibly ISIS seeing a moment of opportunity to strike Iran or to try and join the fray, but it is unrelated to the other events. But the other events are dramatic enough. From the very beginning of this fight and from the horrific day on October 7th and everything that's followed, we have thankfully so far avoided what we might think of as the war that hasn't happened, which is the open, outright, and full-scale war between Hezbollah and Israel. Hezbollah is considerably stronger than Hamas. It is by far the strongest power in Lebanon. And attacks, full-scale attacks, from Hezbollah onto Israel would entail an Israeli response that would be absolutely devastating for Lebanon. 2006, which was the last major war between the two, was already extremely damaging for Lebanon. This could be worse. And Lebanon is already reeling from terrible economic and political crises in the past few years. That would be absolutely horrendous. It would also be devastating inside Israel. Hezbollah, as I said, is much stronger, and that means not only more weapons, but much better weapons than Hamas. It has a full state to operate and semi-govern freely. Hamas has governed the Gaza Strip, but has had a lot of severe Israeli and Egyptian constraints on what it could do. It still managed to do an enormous amount. Hezbollah does not have those constraints. And with support from Iran via Syria, it has, we don't know how many, but it has precise munitions. It has tried to have to acquire many more, which Israel has been assiduously trying to prevent through airstrikes. 
It means that it could strike throughout Israel, in some cases with high precision. It would entail a very large number of civilian casualties, but also strategic targeting, which we also saw from Hezbollah just in the last few days. And as a result, of course, we would see an Israeli response, and in some cases, preemptive acts that would be, as I said, horrendous for Lebanon. So for the administration, this has been a very high priority from day one. That is the context in which one should also see a lot of the Biden administration approach. This hugging of Israel, the bear hug, and trying to nudge Israel in directions that he wants, has not only been about the Gaza Strip, demonstrations and Twitter conversations notwithstanding. To the contrary, a lot of it has been about containing an Israeli response to Hezbollah. And in this context, I should make clear, we already have a war between Israel and Hezbollah. Uh, the fighting has been going on since October 7th. Hezbollah has attacked multiple Israeli positions and Israeli towns uh, right on the border, immediately together with Hamas. But it has been at a scale far less than what Hamas probably hoped for. And the Israeli response has so far, both Israel and Hezbollah have been sort of calibrating their response to stay within some kind of imaginary rule of not full-out escalation. Uh, these are sort of unwritten rules that are negotiated through fire and so far have held, but we are now at the most precarious moment of that. Hezbollah has struck several towns and killed many civilians inside Israel. The Israelis more recently have killed inside Lebanon one of the most senior Hamas people, not just in Beirut, but in the, the Hezbollah stronghold of Beirut. And they have also recently, or someone, presumably Israel, has also recently killed the head of the elite Hezbollah force that would be the one invading Israel just as the Hamas force did. Uh, this is something that Hezbollah has spoken about for years. They have said that the next war would be in the Galilee, meaning inside Israel, just what Hamas did, but presumably with much more force. That was the head of this Radwan force, the elite force of Hezbollah. And we saw in the middle of that, a Hezbollah strike against an air force base in Israel, a command and control radar air force base in Israel, which is an extremely high value target, a really strategic target in Israel, one of the most important air force bases. It did some damage. We don't know how much. This is already at a different level of escalation, and we're not far from more. I say all this, though, to say, of course, certainly Secretary Blinken is, is dealing with this intensively. This is also dealt with intensively, though, through the White House and through the Pentagon, in particular the White House. And there is intensive diplomatic negotiations. The fundamental problem there from the Israeli perspective is that the lesson of October 7th is that Israel under no circumstances whatsoever will allow such an atrocity to happen again to its civilians along the border. And that applies not only to the southern border. Hezbollah, in contradiction of the UN Resolution 1701 that ended the 2006 war, has deployed its forces, including the Radwan force, just along the Israeli border. By the UN resolution, it is supposed to deploy only north of the Litani River, meaning significant buffer between it and Israel. And that means that Israeli towns and villages just on the border, meters away, are in explicit and very overt danger of the same thing that happened on October 7th. And that's something that Israelis will not contemplate. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been evacuated, both from the border of, with Gaza and with the northern border. They're currently displaced inside Israel. The Israeli position has been that they must be allowed to return home and they cannot return home under the threat of that kind of atrocity. And therefore, the question is, can diplomacy move Hezbollah to respect the UN Council resolution and the ceasefire that ended the 2006 war, redeploy its forces north of the Litani River, or might we look at a much worse war to come pretty soon? 
So part of this regional escalatory dynamic we're seeing has been really an uptick in attacks on commercial vessels traveling through the Red Sea by the Houthis. And in response to that, you've seen the United States and other countries form a kind of a coalition to confront that threat. What are some key elements of this dynamic that you're monitoring? Well, in many ways, this is dramatic, in fact, unprecedented to a certain degree uh, development. We're seeing the Houthis, formerly a militia that rules part of Yemen, now being an actor, a major actor in geopolitical events that could have, and already has actually, major ramifications for global trade. Bab al-Mandab is a chokehold of, I believe, the second busiest maritime artery, a major part of international trade. It can affect energy prices, can affect inflation, and much else. The international coalition set up for this, I think, is appropriate precisely because of this. This is much bigger than some sense of solidarity, supposedly, between the Houthis and Hamas, which really, of course, is a manifestation of the Iranian backers of the Houthis, who see one more staging ground in which to conduct this proxy war. So there are several aspects to this. The first is to recognize really what's happening here. It is not only an Iran-Israel, Iran-West war. Certainly, Hamas has its own agenda. It's not driven only by Iranian interests, far from it. But Iran is a major player here. It is very, very closely aligned with Hezbollah, and it has a lot of influence over the Houthis, and it has, to a certain degree, gone through this fight so far unscathed itself. The second is simply the operational question of opening the Bab al-Mandam but allowing a maritime trade there, which is of crucial importance. Yemen is quite far from Israel, obviously, it's not, and Israel is not looking for new fronts. It has enough fronts already in the south and in the north and potentially elsewhere too. But this is a major issue that will not be resolved simply. After the maritime routes are opened, unrelated to Israel just to a large degree, you probably would expect future action as well. I can't say what form it would take, but it is a major issue that's opened up. It also raises issues about maritime security elsewhere. The Houthis have used cheap and simple technology relatively simple, against strategic targets of global trade. And that reflects on other areas too. It means that non-state actors even, or semi-state actors like the Houthis, can use technology, in this case Iranian technology, but relatively cheap and simple, to create a chokehold in global trade. That is a major question for the international system that goes way beyond this fight. So it sounds like You're crediting thus far the Biden administration with helping kind of, you know, cooler heads prevail and that this conflict on the northern front of Israel not escalate so sharply. But right now, it seems, as you noted, that we're at this really important inflection point in which Israel is insisting that Hezbollah, you know, respect previous agreements and withdraw its forces north of the Latani River. And there are really two ways that can be done, as you said, diplomatically, presumably to include U.S. pressure or militarily. And the latter could just have devastating effects for all involved. In the coming days or even weeks, Like, are there any indicators you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not that diplomatic solution is more likely, or alternatively, we are readying for an all-out regional war. So first, you're right. I do credit the Biden administration, and I think this has been something that's been lost in a lot of the rhetoric. The Biden administration has spent a lot of its time appropriately 
on not only the horrific war between Israel and Hamas and the devastation in Israel and in, especially now in the Gaza Strip, but on the wider context that's in the north of Israel with Hezbollah, it's of course also with the Houthis and with Iran behind them both. We saw two American aircraft carrier deployed to the region. All that was not with an eye towards Hamas. Hamas does not care much about the aircraft carriers. That's about Iran, about Syria to a certain degree, and Hezbollah. And to secondarily, Houthis, which is of course another whole issue. In the short term, it is very hard to distinguish between diplomacy that might be successful and diplomacy that is falling apart. And this is because the Israeli position, certainly, but it's actually also the Hezbollah approach, is that to reach successful diplomacy with the other side, they have to make very clear to the other side the alternative, which is a forceful act. And so when the Israelis strike and push, by the way, towards Hamas as well, but also towards Hezbollah, that is also with one eye towards diplomacy. They do believe, right or wrong, that to get Hezbollah to acquiesce to the intensive American diplomacy that is very active at the moment, and not only the Americans, but the Americans are very much involved themselves, that Hezbollah has to feel pressure. Otherwise, it will simply enjoy this horrendous tragedy in the South and continue its sort of bystander position, fighting, but at a low level that it can sustain. Israel feels that Hezbollah must believe that it will not be able to sustain this for a long time and therefore choose a different path. This kind of brinkmanship therefore makes it very difficult to distinguish whether diplomacy has broken down or, in fact, the parties are getting their final shots and to try to better their positions in the diplomacy. I'll say I'm not optimistic about anything in this whole horrific context of the last four months, but if there is one avenue where diplomacy has a chance, it is this one. Lebanon is a state, not a very functioning one, but nonetheless there is a state. Hezbollah is involved in that state. There are other interlocutors, the French and others who can operate here. The state has interests. Hezbollah may be more attuned to the fate of Lebanon than Hamas is to the fate of Palestinians. And if that is the case, there is the chance for diplomacy that would return. There's also a clear benchmark to return to. There is the UN Security Council resolution that, in theory, would allow people to converge on that. So I'm, again, I'm not optimistic, but at least there is an avenue for diplomacy here, and I think there's a chance. But as I said, we're in very, very dicey days right now, and it could break out today, tomorrow. While we're recording, things may escalate beyond control. If a missile of some kind hits the wrong place and kills a large number of civilians in Israel or in Lebanon, we could see one of the sides deciding to escalate dramatically and things could blow up. Presumably, the risk of regional escalation would be sharply reduced, if not dissipate altogether, if the fighting in Gaza stopped. So what would it take, in your view, for Israel to declare victory and you know, unilaterally, at least, stop? the bombardment and the fighting that we're seeing. So the Israeli demand has actually been a lot clearer than people give it credit to, and that's partly the fault of Israel. It has not made clear what an actual demand is. I think people have interpreted the action as vengeance by fire, and I'm not trying to defend or attack any actions. I'm just trying to say I don't think that's the logic. The logic has been that it has very much stemmed from October 7th and from the perception that the Israeli strategy before October 7th, which was to find a modus vivendi with Hamas, a way to deter and contain Hamas, but also allow it to operate and to live, Hamas, not necessarily the Gaza Strip, within the Gaza Strip, 
that strategy failed completely. And so the Israelis across the board, and it's not just Netanyahu, are completely unwilling to contemplate a return to the status quo ante, meaning that Hamas governing a statelet bordering Israel and operating, building up its military capacity within that statelet to carry out the next October 7th, which they have stated clearly they intend to do, that is something Israel will not accept. And it will not accept it, I should say, the resolve around this in Israel is far deeper than people think. So the war may change, and it already has changed very recently to, as I said, a different phase, still a terrible one. But the fight is not remotely over. What would end things in theory? This would never happen. But if Hamas decided Gaza should not suffer this, it could pack up and leave, or it could hand over its weapons to the Palestinian Authority, not to Israel, to the Palestinian Authority, release the hostages, and this would be over in a day. But that was, of course, true for 16 years prior. The blockade, the Israeli-Egyptian blockade of the Gaza Strip, the partial blockade, sometimes very stifling, sometimes slightly less so, that could have ended in a day too, had Hamas decided to hand over its weapons to the Palestinian Authority or to leave, as the PLO did in Beirut in the 80s. It never contemplated doing so, and I don't think it's contemplating doing so now, though perhaps the most extreme case maybe it would do, but I think to a large degree, we are already at the most extreme case, so I don't imagine that happening. That would be sort of what it would take. Short of that, I would expect a long-term confrontation, a confrontation that may change dramatically, but would still entail Israel trying to operate very forcefully to degrade Hamas's capacity to govern the Gaza Strip and to pose a threat from it. That's not the same thing as destroying Hamas, eliminating it. I don't think Israelis are as naive as to think Hamas will evaporate into thin air. But as a governing or fighting force, in a statelet called Gaza, that is something they will not accept, and that is what it would take to end it. And that leads me to my question that I want to ask you about these debates around the day after. I mean, right now we are in this really horrible humanitarian situation of millions displaced, 23,000 killed, and you said that a key part of Blinken's trip to the region and to Israel was to discuss options, ways to deal with Gaza after Hamas. And those you intimated differ from what the debate is within Israel. So I guess first, what do you perceive to be the U.S. strategy here? And how does that conflict with the debate that's happening within Israel? So no one has a clear blueprint, obviously. No one expected, at least on the American-Israeli side, no one expected October 7th. And no one expected Israel to enter Gaza this way. Israel had sort of settled on a strategy by default of containing Hamas, but not entering and removing it. And that's part of why also the Israeli operation was not as prepared as it should have been, probably. But the American approach is that Hamas will be more or less degraded. It will not, as the president has been very clear, Hamas should not be allowed to govern the Gaza Strip. But does that entail the full degrading of it as the Israelis think that remains to be seen. I think time will tell. The day after, from the American perspective, would include a significant role for the Palestinian Authority, reformed, retrained, engaged by the Americans. I believe they are engaging them now on trying to think about how to reform and change perhaps the structure of a very corrupt and extremely unpopular Palestinian Authority, unpopular in its own population. But that that would be essentially the body that at some point, maybe not immediately, that at some point would have to take responsibility of the Gaza Strip. And in the interim, perhaps 
some foreign forces as a providing some kind of sense of security, although I would not put too much stock into that. I don't think there are foreign forces interested in doing so. And even if they were, it's very hard to imagine foreign forces with the capacity and the wherewithal to conduct counterinsurgency operations for a lengthy amount of time. And I think we should expect as a baseline, at least, that Hamas will continue insurgency as long as it can, which could be indefinitely. And so we would probably imagine, from the American perspective, an attempt to move toward secular Palestinian forces and explicitly the Palestinian authority entering the Gaza Strip at some point, and a massive humanitarian effort in the meantime, coupled with a reopening of a political horizon, and as the Americans have stated it, one that aims towards a two-state solution that would allow Arab states to get involved, it would allow the parties, not Hamas, but the Palestinian Authority and Israel, to try to move towards a better future, even if that is not in the short term. So I can't imagine, though, that within Netanyahu's ruling coalition, the idea of the Palestinian Authority somehow taking responsibility for Gaza is terribly popular. So we should distinguish between two things. One is the Palestinian Authority doing so, and the second is reopening the idea of a two-state solution. Netanyahu himself, he's a master politician and he's in very dire political straits. And therefore, he has identified, as usual, where the public mood is. The public mood in Israel is extremely wary of any Palestinian power and sovereignty anywhere. Israelis don't think October 7th is the last incident. And they look elsewhere to the West Bank and, of course, the North, which we mentioned, and think it could easily happen in other parts of the country. And therefore, it's very easy for Israeli politicians, first among them Netanyahu, to paint the Palestinian Authority as part of the threat. Of course, under certain circumstances, it would be a threat. It was during the Second Intifada, which was a very bloody affair starting in the summer of 2000. And so it's very easy to get the Israelis to be wary of that. But I'll say the opposition to the Palestinian Authority being involved is much thinner than other issues that you can imagine. So Israelis, many of them are aware of the Palestinian Authority, but I think opposition to the Palestinian Authority being involved is much thinner than one might think. This current Israeli coalition is very extreme, and some of it will have nothing to do with the Palestinian Authority. But this Israeli coalition may not last long, and it's certainly not where the center of gravity of Israeli politics is. That center of gravity especially embodied by Benny Gantz, who is now in the coalition, but is essentially the main alternative to Netanyahu, would be very open to a role of the Palestinian Authority in the right conditions. Benny Gantz, as Minister of Defense, met several times with Mahmoud Abbas, Palestinian president, and would do so again. And although they are wary of Palestinian force, they would certainly see the Palestinian Authority as part of the solution, not the problem. And so there we have a real debate inside Israel, and it's one that could go either way. Netanyahu is very vocal on one side right now, but I'd say even his opposition is somewhat caveated, and I could easily imagine it changing in the right conditions and in a different political environment. We've already heard the Minister of Defense, who's from Netanyahu's own party, sound quite differently on this. Where the Israeli position is stronger, or I should say wider, is on the idea of a two-state solution anytime soon. The idea of a state, a Palestinian state that had military power or the ability in extreme to do something like October 7th, that is something that is a non-starter even among the Israeli center. Not necessarily in the long term, it's not that Israelis prefer some other solution, but in the short term as an operative thing. So a two-state solution is not in the offering anytime soon, I should say, but that is a different issue. 
And again, I distinguish between this coalition, which is not only very extreme, but very vocal, and the ones who actually make decisions. And that is not all the people you hear quoted here and there. It is a very small group. It's Netanyahu, Minister of Defense Gallant, Benny Gantz, whom I mentioned, Gadi Eisenkot from Gantz's own party, and to a large degree, Ron Dermer, the former ambassador to the US, who is now a minister from Netanyahu's own Likud party, as an is an observer. These are the members of and observers of the mini-war cabinet that has gotten authority from the larger cabinet. It's the one running affairs, not all the people you hear quoted with one or other outrageous or ludicrous ideas. So you make, I, I think, the very important point that deserves to be underscored, which is that, you know, obviously, Israeli policy towards Gaza is driven by domestic politics in important ways. And, you know, it seems that we're in this kind of odd position in which Netanyahu's own political survival and potentially even his ability to evade legal uh, accountability for the various trials that he was facing is tied up in continuing this conflict in Gaza indefinitely. And that the moment that perhaps he declares victory or that there is a ceasefire, the political mood might shift and he suddenly will become very vulnerable. I mean, to what extent is that dynamic, first of all, accurate, and also driving events right now? It is a very worrying set of interests, right? Netanyahu certainly has the interest that you mentioned. Does not mean he's acting on it every day, but it certainly is there. And Netanyahu has proven in recent years to be extremely cynical in political affairs and willing to go to great lengths for his own political survival, which, as you said, may have ramifications for his own legal future as well. I don't think he's conducting the war with that goal front and center, but never put political interest beyond anyone, any politician, certainly. He's not running this alone. As I mentioned in the mini-war cabinet, he has one very close ally, Ron Dermer, but the other members, Minister of Defense Gallant is, to put it very mildly, not a fan of Netanyahu's. He's from Netanyahu's party, but he's very far from Netanyahu personally. And then Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot have an opposite political interest. Gantz individually would be the one to benefit from elections right now. According to the polls, if they held, he would be the next prime minister. And I think we should all look. I mean, one of the events we should be looking for is when Gantz and Eisenkot with him decide to leave the coalition. Now this shift in the mode of the fighting may suggest that it may come soon. They're not the only people from their party who join. There are others who may remain in the coalition. And them leaving the coalition will not in and of itself topple the coalition. It had a majority going in. But nonetheless, it is in a precarious state. This is an open question about the politics. If and when we see early elections, elections are scheduled only for two and a half or three years from now, so there's quite a while. Everyone is expecting elections in 2024, but these expectations depend on several developments, and it's very hard to say exactly when they will happen, besides the general guess that everyone more or less shares that they will probably happen sometime in 2024. So in the next few weeks, if not sooner, you are looking to see whether or not Benny Gantz leaves the kind of emergency coalition. Could be weeks. It could be more than a few weeks. There's the war timeline. There's also a timeline of the Israeli budget, which is very controversial and sort of brings to the fore the differences between the very extreme members of this coalition versus Benny Gantz and could offer him an, an excuse, a political pretext to leave. 
I do think this moment when Gantz leaves the coalition, which again, I do not know exactly when it will be, maybe weeks, it may be months, I think that would be a significant moment. But just to underscore again, that is not, in and of itself, that does not mean elections yet. It would be a significant step in that direction. So long as he's inside the coalition, it's hard to see elections happening. But once he leaves, that's not enough to bring about elections, but it would be a major step towards it. Natan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.